All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. This is the Mansion Murders Trial Podcast. I'm Melanie Alnwick, along with my colleague Paul Wagner here today. Um, we are really into the meat of the trial here with some very compelling witnesses this week, right, Paul? Yeah, I think that uh, if you're a courtroom observer, um, these witnesses have hurt the defense case tremendously um, with a lot of what they had to say about Darren Wint's um, behavior and activities in the days after the murder, his trip to New York, etc. And we are learning things that we didn't know before. Um, let's start, I think, probably with the the biggest witness of the week, I would probably say, is Vanessa Hales. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah, Vanessa was a very important witness for the prosecution because uh, she uh, was with Darren uh, in New York. He came up to New York to visit with her, and he came flush with cash, a lot of $100 bills. That's all he had was $100 bills. He didn't have a job. Uh, he told her that uh, he'd gotten the money by selling his van and um, by winning the lottery for $2,000. Um, but um, he had more than $2,000 uh, that if you add it up because uh, he had given her $1,500 in cash that she had in an envelope, and that he had uh, paid for a hotel and bought her dinner and bought her shoes and gave her an iPhone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and her testimony, we learned, uh, was under a grant of immunity. We didn't know that before. So, And the immunity, from what I understand, is because she and Darren then fled to a hotel. So she could be charged with harboring a fugitive or, or helping him, but right. ultimately I think... She did that out of fear and perhaps even love. Well, that wasn't explained on the stand, so we don't know why she did it. All we know is that she was with him. They were in bed uh, the night of the 20th, um, and suddenly Darren's picture flashes up on the screen. Uh, she says she jumped out of bed. Uh, she said, oh, my God, Dylan, that's your face. That's you. Right, and she said Dylan because that's what she calls him. That's his middle name. Yeah, and he goes by that on Facebook. So she calls him Dylan. She says he appears shocked uh, that he jumps up, that he grabs a phone. He calls his father, gets his father on the phone, and then it happens to be a detective is with his father at that point. And the detective gets on the phone, and he says, well, what am I wanted for? And uh, he says, you're wanted for murder. As if he didn't know. Yeah. So at that point, uh, the two of them uh, grab some bags they head out the door. They're fearful uh, that the uh, police are going to show up there at uh, Vanessa's house. And uh, they go to a hotel, uh, and they spend the night in the hotel. Hey, this is testimony that the, these events, that, that's something that comes out of a movie, right? Like your fiancé is in bed with you, and his <laughs> picture flashes on the screen, and he's wanted yeah. for murder. This is yeah. crazy. There's yeah. so many crazy connections. Yeah. and odd things that are have been happening in this case. Well, Vanessa's testimony was difficult for me because she spoke in whispers practically. And and it drove me nuts because the prosecutor and and the judge wouldn't say speak up, speak up. She she had her head bowed practically the whole time. She had tissues in her hand. She sniffled through the whole thing. In fact, I misheard a couple of things she said. And I, we should point that out right now because I reported that she said that Darren had told her that he had gotten $700 by selling two iPhones. 
when I've checked with some other reporters, and they heard that he had said that he had sold his van. So we have reported that it was money that he got from selling iPhones, and we don't believe that's the case now. But I couldn't hear her very well. And so there were a couple of things where I turned around to other reporters. I go, what did she just say? Yeah, we, we do that a lot in the courtroom sometimes when one yeah. of us misses something. And I think that's been something that's great. Uh, there are so many different reporters there from different outlets, and we certainly keep some information to ourselves, but there is a a lot of collegial sharing in terms of just making sure, did I hear that right? Yeah, well, nobody wants to report anything wrong, and uh, some people might hear something that somebody else heard that they didn't know necessarily that what they heard was right. And so if you get two or three others to say, oh, no, it was this, this, this is what I heard, and I went, okay, you're you're probably right there. Right. be- it's and just it's, good fact It's mainly because of the way people are speaking on the stand. If they're not speaking very clearly, um, and we've had some people on there with accents. So, uh, and I'm not very good with accents. Right. <laughs> the iPhones did come into testimony again. So there was a picture. Yeah, there that- was a picture of two white iPhones sitting on a counter that would appear to be a counter, appear to be a granite counter. Um, we don't know where that photo was taken. The prosecution has been kind of uh, cagey about what they know about that photograph. I haven't; it hasn't been clear to me where that photo was taken. Other than it's coming into play at some point here, um, where uh, she confirms that that photo was sent to her by Darren uh, of these two iPhones. You know what I think? I think those phones were probably taken. Uh, that picture was probably taken on the kitchen counter at the Savopolis home. That's the and speculation, to her. yeah. And we know that in opening statements that the defense attorney, Jeffrey Stein, is alleging that Darren was given the victim's two iPhones and money as payment for his cooperation and his van. Okay. Yeah, so, you heard the opening statements. Yeah. I did not. So, so somehow yeah. they're going to try to tie those iPhones yeah. to Darrell. Yeah. So so the defense is trying very, very hard to tie his two brothers into this. And we did hear from one brother this week, Stefan, who um, testified for quite a while. We have not heard from Darrell. And he's the uh, he's the real wild card. A lot of people are asking if we are going to hear from Darrell. A number of those uh, people, people in our Mansion Murders Facebook group have asked about that. I personally... I don't think he's going to testify. Well, uh, we've heard uh, there was another reporter who said that he'd heard a reading of the, the arrest of the witnesses in the case, and Darrell's name did not come up. So um, I guess the defense could try and call him, but um, we have not seen him. We have not heard from him yet. And he's key to this because the defense is claiming that Stefan and Darrell are the ones that organized this whole thing, and Stefan, and I'm sorry, Dura- uh, Darren got duped into it somehow. So let's, um, there's a lot more to talk about when it comes to Darrell, but I think we should go into Stefan a little bit more because that was just, um, his testimony was was pretty compelling. And, and the thing that I was so struck with, and you and I discussed this sort of in one of those um, debriefs after the court session of the day, Paul and I often will call each other on the phone and say, well, what did you hear? What did you think about this? What I was so struck with is how unusual this trial is in that the you have a witness on the stand for the prosecution who's basically being prosecuted by the defense 
and defended by the prosecution. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it is it is a wacky case. I, in fact, I don't know that I've ever seen someone who's been accused by the defense get on the stand for the prosecution and have to defend themselves. Uh, Stefan said that he learned that he was suddenly a suspect, according to the defense, on the news. and uh, But yet he still came in and testified, and uh, testified, I felt, in a... A very honest, forthright, compelling way. Uh, I think the jury uh, listened to this guy. He answered every single question. There are certainly places where the defense is pointing to where you go, hmm, that's kind of interesting. And I think that the one point that I've said, now I can see where the defense is going with this, and that is phone calls that okay. were made between Stefan and Durrell. Right, because he his testimony did fall apart a little bit on that. I was there for the direct when he was saying that he had not heard from his brother, had not talked to his brother uh, up until the time that he was arrested. And then they showed some contradicting testimony or records or was that with Durrell that's Durrell okay yeah so uh, his relationship with Durrell I'm not really clear on to be honest with him maybe you know a little bit more about that but what they did is uh, he claims that he was trying to offer Durrell a job he is a painting supervisor for a company uh, Stefan that is we're talking about Stefan that he's a a supervisor for a painting company and uh, the Prosecutor Laura Bach took him through extensive records to show that he was working on the 13th and the 14th, Mm -hmm. the days of the abduction and the murder. Uh, And then, in fact, on the day uh, of the murders, he was working all day long from 6 a.m. to midnight, which the defense has tried to poke holes in. Um, But what they showed was that there were 23 phone calls on the 12th, the 13th and the 14th between Stefan and Durrell. And they were for a variety of lengths, some just for a few seconds, some for several minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what they pointed out, and this is where the jury might say, hmm, and that is that on the morning of the 13th, there were two phone calls that were made by Stefan to Durrell in a very short period of time. Uh, have my notes here. Okay. One was at 5.56 a.m. for 110 seconds. The other one was at 6.04 a.m. for 46 seconds. Okay. Then there's no more calls all day on the 13th up until the 14th at 4.22 p.m. There's one call for two seconds. At 4.23, a call for two seconds. At 5.43, there's one for 415 seconds. That's where Judith Pipe gets like, up, what were you guys the defense attorney, about? and she goes, isn't that the time the Porsche is burning? And Stefan says, I don't know. Is it the time the Porsche is burning? It's about that time. It's somewhere in that... 415 it's, seconds. It's wow. somewhere in that area. Okay. I mean, I, I think it's past that area, uh, to be honest with you, I, because right. I think we had um, the woman from La Fontaine Blue say that she came out of the business at, at around 5 out. o'clock right, and saw... Right. Darren Wentz standing in the parking lot. So that would have been, that call would have been 43 have minutes later. PM about it's when, when the, the Porsche was on fire. Porsche was on fire, okay. So Stefan says, I don't know. Then there were two other calls that night uh, between Stefan and Darrell, one at 9.09 p.m. for 45 seconds and another one at 9.12 for 36 seconds. Now, we know that 
Darrell was hired by Stefan, and his orientation was on that Saturday, which was the 16th, correct? Was it on Saturday? I thought it was on Friday. Uh, was it? Okay. Yeah. All right. I don't, you know. Uh, the I orient- know. These dates and times get. Yeah. The orientation, I'm not clear on His on first day of work was the 18th, was May 18th. Yeah, it was the following week. It was the Monday week. after orientation. And, right. Oh, the orientation was on the 15th. It was on the fifteenth. It was on okay. the fifteenth. So that's they showed, Friday the fifteenth. Right. Okay. They show the new hires orientation sheet for PCM, which is the company that Stefan worked for. Um, yeah, a couple of other th- interesting things with Stefan as well. First of all, we learned um, not only through Stefan but also through uh, the brother-in-law Godfrey Ailing that uh, Darren has a a tendency to get very angry over minor arguments. So Stefan uh, was on the stand when they played two video, two voicemails, and you heard those voicemails. They, yeah, they were they calls were, that Darren made to Vanessa. To, to Vanessa, yeah, his but girlfriend. But Stefan was listening to them to verify that that was indeed Darren's voice, and we learned that it was an argument about um, over dishes. He, the, they had, Darren had had an argument with the little sister over dishes, and I guess it got pretty angry. And Darren was saying, this ain't over yet, and if I got to go, they all have to go with me. Basically, what the jury didn't hear, but basically a a threat to kill his family. Oh, yeah. The jury has not heard another clip Clip that the judge hasn't allowed in, which is apparently uh, Darren uh, threatening to kill them all. Uh, But the jury hasn't heard that. And you have to wonder, I mean, in, in my opinion, I would want the jury to hear that there must be a reason they don't want to inflame the passions of the jury is that why they don't put that uh, in i i don't know if the judge God. determined that that was uh, prejudicial maybe uh against darren um and so she's not allowing it in right but other, we the, did you heard the you heard them right i heard them yes. and, and we've never really heard darren's voice very much yeah he has an accent a little bit of an accent and his yeah. voice was actually um his voice doesn't match his body you would expect him to have like this deep, menacing, growly kind of voice just because his picture looks so menacing. But, you know, it's a it's a mugshot. Uh, his voice was actually kind of um, kind it's, of light. It's, and it sounds like an island's accent. Yeah, higher, yeah. higher, not really high pitched, but sort of lighter in tenor. So uh, the other thing I want to talk about with Stefan, the other thing that a lot of people are, are questioning or thinking that that there must be some connection is the fact that Stefan was at George Washington University down near 24th and K and the minivan was picked up somewhere around that area by the tow truck so there's this big question is how did the minivan get there and Stefan was yeah. in was in uh, close proximity He's the only one that, that they can place in close proximity to that minivan. That part of it is confusing to me. Yes. Somebody's going to have to explain it at some point, maybe well, in closing arguments. Maybe we'll learn more from the defense. And I'm sure as the jury, there are certain things that they're just not going to oh, be able to make sure. sense of either. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, if we're sitting there confused about some things, the jury is sitting there going, what? <laughs> I'm sure they're confused, yeah. too. And the key thing also with Stefan that the that the prosecution kept hammering away at is, he does not have long hair. He's never had long hair. He didn't have long hair back in 2015. So they wanted to make that point clear to the jury because every ID has been with a man that had shoulder-length dreads. Yeah, Stefan uh, was bald 
uh, and uh, I didn't see any facial hair on him it's, when he it's testified. It's a very, very light kind of thin beard. And we didn't get a picture of him. He's uh, one of the few witnesses we haven't gotten a picture of because uh, he apparently got a free pass out of the courthouse to yeah. try and avoid us, um, yeah. which is very troubling. But um, somebody uh, felt sorry for him and found a back door for him. So we one of the few people we don't have pictures of. Right. We try. We do yeah. our best. We tried very hard. <laughs> uh, and, and the other thing, too, is they talked about the um, the other reason when we're talking about hair is that mitochondrial DNA evidence that was introduced this week, early on in the week. Basically, we touched on it before, yeah. but the hair sampling uh, being uh, the same as Darren Wint, he cannot be excluded, but right. Stefan Wint cannot be excluded, Correct. nor can anybody who bears a maternal relationship to those two. Right, and on the stand, Judith Pipe said to him, your DNA was inside that house. And Stefan said, my hair DNA was inside that house, not my DNA. It was almost like he was coached to say that. Well, but, but it's true. Right? It's, but it, what he said was true. Yeah. But that's that, I guess, is for the jury then to kind of sort out. Because we know it couldn't be any of the other siblings. It can't be Darrell because Darrell doesn't share a mother with Stefan and Darren. Yeah. So it can't be him. And we haven't seen Darrell. We don't even know what he looks like. No. Well, we know what he looks like from a mugshot. Oh, you've seen that? Yeah. Did they show that? They in? did show it in court. Oh, they, oh, they, they did. did? Yeah. Okay. Um. Because oh, been... that's right. Because at the very beginning, uh, in opening statements, right? Right. Okay, I missed that. Because you were. But they also, yeah. when they were, when Jordan Wallace was on the stand, they showed a picture of Stefan and said, "Do you know this man?" And mm. He said, "No." Do you know? And then they showed a picture of Darrell. Do you oh. know this man? Okay, I no. Miss that. And they also had the stepmother identify the two men as well. And in in those pictures, both of them were. Uh, clean shaven on their heads no, okay. no hair if you're new to this podcast uh, you should know that melanie is doing the mornings i'm doing the afternoon so, right, so we, we melanie, each other is, in. melanie is seeing some things that i'm not seeing and vice versa so right uh, and no other news organization is doing this we're the only ones doing it that way i'm so. glad we're doing it this way well, we're covering the whole thing, right. whereas some news organizations just have one reporter. From so. end to end. Yeah. Um, I want to see if we have any other questions. There's lots more I can talk about. but um, uh, Rise, Reza, is, is, uh, she's, she's got one. Okay. Go right ahead. Hi, Shantice. I know you're active on the... She's group. very interested in this case. Yes. Did the police confiscate the hoodie that he was wearing that the girlfriend said smelled like a, um, a coal factory? Well, they would have had to because they arrested him on Rhode Island Avenue and they would have taken his clothes. Right. Well, I, I mean, answer, that's standard. I can answer that question. Um, I think I can answer that question. So in among the evidence in that Chevy Cruze, they showed a black drawstring bag. Mm-hmm. a black and pink drawstring bag, and then took out some items from it and laid them out, photographed them. And one of those was what looked to be a gray shirt. Mm-hmm. Might have been a hoodie, but, you know, when you kind of – they didn't lay it out flat, but it was just kind of, I don't know, right. laid out, dro- pulled out a little bit. But I couldn't see that there was a hoodie on it, but it was gray. Yeah. Well, it, it, it is standard for the police when they arrest somebody in a homicide case to take their clothes. It's just standard. So if they didn't, then they really messed up. But I can't imagine that they did not. Also, it reminded me that Vanessa said that when they got to the hotel, he was wearing a hoodie that had a red stain on it. And she asked him about it, and he said 
that he had uh, been running from the police, mm-hmm. tripped and fell, and cut himself. And that's how the no, red stain no, got no onto the hoodie. No follow-up questions there like, you were running from the police. Why <laughs> yeah, were you doing right. that? Exactly. And, and also, no, she was asked, did you ask him if he did it? She she was asked. No, I think what she asked, what Different she was phrasing. asked, yeah, what she was asked was, did he confess oh, did to he confess? you? Yeah, and she said no. Yeah, and then uh, Laura Bach, the prosecutor, following up on that line of questioning, because Judith Pipe wanted to know that, uh, figuring she probably already knew the answer to it, right? Because she wouldn't have asked Vanessa that question had she not known the answer. But um, Laura Bach then said. Have you had contact with Darren since his arrest? And she said, yes. And she said, how? And she said, I've talked to him on the phone. And then she said, but you know that those phone calls are recorded, right? And she said, yes. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Just a couple of questions that we had also on our... um on our podcast group here. Let's see. A couple of quick ones that are easy to answer. Um, Ariana Living Good asked, has the family for Sava and Amy been attending every day? Yes, we know they've been there every day. They sit in the same spot every single day. And um, The girls have not been right, there. Right. That was her other question. Have yeah. the daughters been there? They no. have not. And I, no. I, I would expect that they wouldn't be there. I think they're both in college, right? They I think. are. Yeah. And Katerina and Abigail. It's a long case. The Dude. only time I've seen one of the daughters there was uh, in the preliminary hearing, mm-hmm. uh, the first preliminary hearing. Uh, one of the daughters was there, and I'm not sure which one it was. One other question. Uh, will they call the medical examiners? This is from Pam matthews Voland. I would think they would be last, and you and I both agree that we think that the medical examiner testimony is going to be sort of the... Lay it all out there. Yeah. this That's standard in all murder cases that the medical examiner testifies, so I don't see how they can get around it. I believe we'll see that maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, and it's going to be tough uh, for the jury to, because they're going to have to show photographs and they're going to have to detail exactly how Asava, Amy, Philip, and Vera were killed, right. and that's going to be tough. And they also mentioned that because this is their aggravated circumstances they have to prove the aggravated circumstances that these murders were especially heinous atrocious and cruel and when you an aggravated circumstances that a murder takes place in the course of a robbery uh an abduction a kidnapping that's if they had the death penalty in washington dc those would be aggravating circumstances and could lead to the death penalty but that does not occur one of the things that we learned this week had to do with the actual arrest of Darren Wint. The the big question that we've had yeah. for so long right. was who were these other people <laughs> yep. and why weren't they charged? Yep. I think we know the answer. We now. do now. Yeah. I mean, it's been a mystery for three years and we've all wondered why weren't these people charged? And we now know. And it's sort of, and it makes sense. It, does. Uh, it really makes sense. And we heard from two of the women who were with him and we heard from his cousin, uh, George, George Elias, uh, who testified he was the one in the box truck because the box truck he owned and that was his. Right. And so everybody was like, what's up with the box truck? Right, right. You know, and uh, where were these women from and who were they? And so now we know. And uh, they laid out uh, pretty much uh, what happened that night. And uh, they were, uh, you know, I hate to say duped into it. But they got rolled into something yeah. that they didn't know what they were getting into. And, and that is a very, I mean, you feel for these, these 
women. They were yeah. 20 years old or yeah, something. Yeah. And a lot of people had questions about Darrell and why would he put these girls in a situation where they are in a car with a murderer to potentially turn him in? All of that could go very wrong. Yeah, they didn't know what was going on. Some of this is uh, still a little murky. Yes, but we, I agree. We heard from Chelsea Nunez and we heard from Felicia Ruffin. They were two of the girls that were in the Chevy Cruze. I think it was Chelsea's mother's car. Yes. And uh, they were going to buy marijuana from a guy named Goo, who Goo. is uh, Darrell's nickname. And so exactly how all this came together is still a little murky, but uh, what we think happened is that Darrell gets in touch with with George Elias, his cousin. He says, I need you to help me untangle from my brother. And he used those words, untangle? He, he did use that word, untangle. And the prosecutor said, what does that mean? He says, get out from under this. Um, I need to get, uh, we need to, to somehow get Darren turned in to the police. And so George met Darrell in front of his house in Beltsville, and uh, they discussed it. And uh, George says he told Darrell that, when we go to get Darren, you better get him and bring him in and get in the vehicle or I'm calling the police. Uh, George was a compelling witness because um, he didn't want Darren in the truck with him. He didn't want Darren in the truck with him. He said he would help. Uh, and, and, and this is where some of it was just left out. It's like, well, why? Why did you want to help like that? Why not just call the marshal service and tell him where Darren where he is? is? Because you he know? was in a hotel. He they was in a hotel. Just said he's in right. a hotel, and dude, hey, we're gonna we're gonna come pick you up. Just stay right there. We'll be there in a sec. We'll right. knock on the door. Right. So I don't understand why this whole plan yeah. and plot and. Well, it what seems we, so dangerous. What we know is that Darrell was in touch with Detective Jeff Owens. Jeff yes. Owens has been at the trial every day. He hasn't testified yet, but he was the lead detective. And so uh, Jeff Owens is trying to get them to come to 300 Indiana, where uh, police headquarters is. And George Elias actually testified on the stand. He goes, I don't go into D.C. I don't know D.C. I don't know where 300 Indiana Avenue is. So he's trying to get directions from Detective Owens on how to get there. So what we know is that he agrees to go to the hotel, tells Darrell, go get Darren, and when he comes out, put him in the car with the girls because I'm not going to have him in my car, in my truck, because his pla his face has been plastered all over the place. Right, right. That was his reasoning. And what I don't understand still, though, and I, and I, a lot of people are asking us about this on our, on our um, Facebook page, is why would the girls go along with this? I mean, it, you listen to Chelsea's testimony. I think she knew what was going on, and maybe the other two didn't. What was her involvement? She says that she only knew about it once they fell in behind the box truck. She said that Darren gets into the car. He calls himself Jason. He's um, uh, She didn't describe him as being uh, arrogant like... Uh, like Felicia, Felicia did. did. But they had different experiences. Chelsea was in the front. Felicia yeah. was right next to him. Right. But she says, Chelsea says, she gets a call from Dylan once they're driving to say, don't worry, but the police are going to be closing in on us. Okay. The, the and police meanwhile, are following you've got this us. Guy, you're driving this yeah. guy who potentially, maybe at that point she didn't know he was wanted for murder, but a she, violent yeah. guy. We know, the jury doesn't know this, but he has a violent past. And That's he's right. in the car with three young girls. If he gets any wind of where the, 
I don't know if he knew they were taking him in or not. No, he 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 must have known. He had to have. He had to have known. Yeah, that okay. he was being turned in because uh, uh, Darrell uh, had been on the phone with Jeff Owens. So, um, uh, but what's interesting here is that the, the uh, when I listened to uh, Felicia's testimony, she was clueless apparently. Uh, if you believed yeah. her testimony, yeah. and I have no reason not to believe her, but uh, she claimed she was clueless that she's sitting in the back of the car. She's trying to engage him in, in conversation. She says he's getting a calls on one phone and then he's picking up another Going phone. Going into the bag, and some he's, bag and, and grabbing another phone. Yeah, He's got two phones and he's getting calls on one. He's returning them on another. She says he smells like a coal factory. And then she says like gasoline. And that's another thing we should focus in on right. because that's where the defense really tried to hammer her. Oh, they excoriated her yeah. for a little you bit. You heard but, that. But, so. but I, I think she was able to rehabilitate her testimony, and I do think that she won over the sympathies of the jury. I think maybe the defense went a little too far in trying to hammer her. Um, but, yes, she she initially testified. She said gasoline. And then uh, Jeffrey Stein came back with her statements to investigators that's right. that night. That's right. And she, she never, never told she never the police. That yes, that's right. And then her grand jury testimony, one of the grand jurors asked her directly, you mean like gasoline? And she said no. So that was a little bit of a problem, but I think maybe her memory was a little off. I think overall, though, her impression of... The, so she kind of had to walk back the gasoline part, but the coal factory smelled like coal. She kept saying it's a, it's a homey smell for me because her grandfather used to work in a coal factory, and that's what she was reminded of. Um, and I think that's the kind of smell that, you know, certain smells bring you back to certain places and people. Yeah, so the implication is is that Darren is wearing clothes that he may have had on during the crime. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, really, that that's a little hard for me to believe. Or or his you know? hair. Okay, you and I have been to, to fires before. Yeah, yeah. And you know that that soot, that smell, it seeps into your clothing, yeah, your it, jacket, it and it seeps you. into your yeah, hair. Yeah. And when you go to wash your hair, you smell it all over again. Or anyone that, that used to smoke, I think, knows how that cigarette smoke yeah. can kind of permeate. So maybe it was in his hair, she not said necessarily it was, She said it was in his hair. She did say it was on his body. She yeah. said it was just on him. Yeah, on him. That's right. Uh, she did use those she, words. She had some colorful she... quotes there. But uh, <laughs> I think she was referring to that. And also the fact that he had dreadlocks. You don't wash your dreads all the time. And so it's possible that a smell like that could probably stay for a little while your yeah. hair is very absorbent when it comes to smells but yeah, yeah. she was she was very upset on the stand she said that this was the worst experience of her life now can you yeah. imagine you're a young girl you're you're going out with your friends for a night of partying next thing you know your car is surrounded mm -hmm. by police officers flashing lights guns drawn lasers on their lasers chests. on their chest yeah and then you get taken into the police station. Right. And you guys and are you're all clueless. You don't know what's going on and you are all separated from each other. Yeah. I don't know how long she was there. I don't know how long either of them were. I don't know what, when that happens. Are you able to tell somebody where you are? Are you worried that you're getting busted for pot? I mean, you don't know what's going on. No, you don't. And uh, she said, too, uh, I was at Chelsea. I think Chelsea said that she never got her possessions back. Um, Here's one thing that George said. 
she never got her things back. No, she said that she never got her, her things back. Um, uh, George was asked... Um, I'm losing my train of thought. I had it a second something ago. Something that he didn't get back, some possessions No, no, or no. It was, uh, it was a question he was asked. Oh, I know. He said um, that when they were, uh, as soon as the marshals and the police closed in and had rifles on them, uh, it was kind of almost funny. George uh, says to the officer who came up to the driver's side door, he said, uh, he says, I'm on the phone with Detective Owens. <laughs> And the prosecutor said, did that matter? She says, no, they didn't care at they all. They didn't seem to care, no. right? Kind of scary. And, and yeah. it does make you wonder, was there a coordination or was there something? There oh, there was been. definitely a coordination right. because right. he said that when they were outside the hotel, he noticed three cars with dark-tinted windows that were watching them, and he suspected it was the police because he knew they were about to turn them in. Why they didn't close in right there and then, I don't know. And It's as if they just waited until they got into the city. right. But there, there still are a lot of questions, I think, that have not been answered as far as Darrell's involvement, yeah. maybe, with the um, money laundering and perhaps the girls. Because Chelsea did testify, right, that she agreed to help cash in, turn turn that cash into money orders. Well, she did, but then she said she went to try and buy the money orders, but she couldn't because she didn't have an ID. All well, right. somebody did. Yeah, so that's... And I think Felicia said that she didn't buy any money Felicia orders. Felicia never talked about money orders. So she there must the have girls, been the third girl. She said the girls picked her up after work. Yeah. Um, so here's so just, the, to, yeah, to, just to backtrack, so if people are unfamiliar with what we're talking about. So Darrell gives a lot of cash to at least one of the girls, and they go to a CVS and a Rite Aid mm-hmm. to try and buy a bunch of money orders, right? And w- we figured it out. What was it, $10,000 right. worth of money orders? I have and. But there's, we'll, so, we'll talk about this because yeah. there's other money orders too. I went back through my notes, but okay. go ahead. Yeah, so we've not heard from one of the three girls um, because we know that Chelsea said she couldn't buy them. She said she saw Darrell in line to buy them and was uh, was asked, was Darrell trying to hide his face? She said no, but we never heard whether or not Darrell was successful in getting any money orders. And then I never heard any testimony from Felicia no. That she had bought any money orders. So, okay. so here's what we know. In the Chevy Cruze, there were ten money orders worth a thousand dollars. So that's ten thousand dollars each in a stack of ten. Okay. We know that in the truck, there was thirteen thousand three hundred dollars in money orders, seven thousand three hundred and eighty-one dollars in cash. Mm. In that made up of seventy-three one hundred-dollar bills plus the miscellaneous change. I also added up what you told me, um, $900 for the taxi I know was taken back, plus the $1,500 cash, the $200 in lottery scratch-offs. I don't know what was spent uh, with Vanessa. Dinner, money for her credit card, the new hotel. shoes. And the ho- oh, the hotel. I didn't add the hotel. Yeah. And the tow truck driver that went to get his minivan. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much was with that there's still money missing and we're still trying to figure out but the question that i had with the with the money laundering also in the chevy cruise there were two purses a wallet they took all the possessions from the girls right there were a couple of other money orders miscellaneous money orders 
I went through my notes. There were some from Rite Aid and some from CVS totaling $2,000. Hmm. They weren't the $1,000 increments. Mm-hmm. And then this is the really weird thing, and a couple of people have keyed in on this uh, that were at the trial. There were two money order receipts for a little more than $300 each. We all picked up on this. The date was the 14th of May. Oh, you mentioned that. This is testimony I did not hear. So, And that was all coming yeah. from the evidence technician who was taking the things out and cataloging them. It makes you wonder, when did the money laundering begin? Well, okay, let's go back to the receipt that Darren sent to Vanessa for $1,100 in legal fees. There was oh, a I didn't date- know about that. Yeah, so uh, he he paid an attorney eleven hundred dollars uh, for legal fees, and he paid in cash. And uh, when was that? Uh, that's I'll have to go back through my notes because okay, there must have been was... a date on there, right? And that was my question: is I thought maybe you knew the date, so I'll go back and look what we're talking about. I don't know the date on that one. But that's one. yeah, that's uh, they sh- actually showed the picture, and Vanessa confirmed that yes, Darren had taken a picture of that receipt and sent it to her. Right. But what the legal fees were for, I have no idea. So the question becomes, how long does it take to cash to go around to these places and do all these money orders? And are we to believe that all of this happened just on the 20th? It had to have been going on. This had to have been going on. And that must be what George was referring to when he said Darrell wanted help getting out from under this. Getting out from under his brother. Yeah, maybe that has some kind of an underlying wide open window here that we don't know anything about uh, yet. Um, it just it seems like it would be a lot to have the girls running around on that Saturday cashing in money for money orders. Well, don't you? That would have come out in testimony, I think. I would think so, but yeah. maybe they've just. Is it possible they just decide to leave it alone because they're not prosecuting these people? Well, but if if there's an underlying question as to whether or not these girls may have gotten money before that date to buy money orders, that Laura Bach needs to get that square, right? I would think so, but clearly I was not the only one. Again, I checked it with a couple of other reporters that were sitting next to me, and then I got a question from someone else on Facebook who was sitting in on the trial that said, did you catch that, the 14th? Yeah. And we thought, yeah. well, maybe the money orders weren't related. Maybe Chelsea. Yeah, there's some things maybe that Chelsea goes and needs the money orders for something else, and it had but, nothing to do with it. Yeah. Uh, and we all kept looking very closely, trying to find the dates on these money receipts, yeah. but they never they never zoomed in on the date for those receipts. Yeah, and uh, one other thing I'll, we'll tell people that are listening is that lots of times they're flashing pictures up. And you're trying to write down as quickly as you can what you're seeing, and then you look back up, and it's gone from the screen. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> you know, they're not doing this for our benefit. No, they are not. Now, I'm looking back at my notes. Uh, this receipt, uh, I wrote this question down. I said, where did the money come from? And then it said, got money from the lottery. That was for the $1,100 receipt for legal fees, but I thought maybe I would have written the date down. And I didn't. And I'm wondering if there was a date on that receipt, and I just didn't see it. Well, none of us have picked up on that yet. Uh, there were a couple of stipulations, and one of them was that they went to the lottery boards in New York, in D.C., and in Maryland 
they're required to report any winnings greater than $600, and there were no winnings assigned to Darren Wint. Right. We did hear that. So yeah. no one can say, well, maybe he did win the lottery. Right. We also know that the f a fire investigator testified again. So we're going to hear, I think we're going to hear more testimony, I, although I'm trying to think who's, who else is coming up because I know they took from Vanessa Hale's house a black suitcase, a laptop, a bag of clothing, and some shoes. And I thought maybe we would hear a little bit more about the red stain on the sweatshirt, but wouldn't you think that would have already come into yeah. forensics? Uh, if if there was a red stain on his uh, hoodie and they have possession of that, they could have tested that stain for blood, and if it came positive, became positive and they were able to get a profile off of it, they would have been able to check it for DNA. Right. So, so we haven't heard, if we haven't heard about it, couldn't get anything from then it. maybe they didn't get anything. Or, see, dun, this is dun, the dun, thing dun, I keep telling you, is the, rebuttal <laughs> the rebuttal case, case, right? This is something that people don't really think about too much, and that is when you prosecute a case, um, you're allowed to present your case, the defense presents its case, and then since the government has a burden of proof, they get a rebuttal case, and they're allowed to save some items that they have not told the jury about yet to sort of hammer it home. I didn't, and, I didn't uh, realize that they were able to kind of hold back some oh, of yeah. their cards. Oh, sure. Yeah. They, they could put somebody on there and say, you know, here's something that you haven't heard before, and, and it's dun dun dun. Right. Interesting. <laughs> so there's not that many witnesses left to go in the case for the prosecution. I'm trying to look here. We know that Amy Michaud is going to come back. She's the trace evidence analyst. That's what the hearing was about this morning. Uh, what we understand is the prosecution is no longer going to seek to have her testify that the hair came from someone's head they are kind of giving in to the defense on that but they are going to have they're going to seek to have her testify that it was a about the length of the hair that the ends of it were broken off so that it which would suggest that the hair was actually longer than that little piece and that it was consistent with uh, someone of african-american origin but they're not going to press any more about the head hair. I think it was just too controversial. Yeah, out of the earshot of the jury today, they're having a hearing in federal in uh, Superior Court. Uh, both sides are arguing over the hair evidence, and uh, the defense uh, may be able to win this one because uh, there has been um, many cases in recent years to show that uh, hair analysis is uh, junk science, that you cannot compare one hair to another uh, under a microscope and say that it came from the same person. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. Mitochondrial DNA uh, can determine, as we know, uh, that the hair came from a sibling uh, or from, what, a mother, right? Uh, no, on the maternal uh, side. On the maternal side. So uh, I have a feeling that uh, the prosecution is going to lose that case um, or lose that argument, and that, may, that testimony may not come in. Um, Risa, you said there's a question. There's a few oh, questions. Oh, I'm sorry. I, okay. I was so involved in, in our conversation that we forgot to get to those. Riveting content. So, Nikish Moss asked, what type of emotions is Darren showing? What ty type of emotions is Darren showing? 
good question because we cannot really see his face. Um, he's sitting in front to the right of us. He rarely turns towards us. You can sometimes see the side of his face. Now, uh, here's Mel and I talked about this because um, uh, Keith Alexander from The Washington Post wrote, I think it was yesterday, yes, that um, he saw a clerk get up and hand Darren tissues because he had gotten emotional when Vanessa was testifying. I didn't see that. I talked to another reporter from another television station who was sitting in there with me, and she said she didn't see it either. Okay. So um, it could be we missed it. You know, there's lots of times we're sitting there, we're, we're, our heads are down, we're writing. It's hard to look at three things at once, especially when a particular witness is coming to the stand and you want to see, do they do they make eye contact? What is that like? It's, yeah. it's hard. You're trying to look at the jury. You're trying to look at the defendant. You're trying to look at the, the witnesses. At the same time, you're trying to write everything down. <laughs> yes. And yes. so there's a lot going on. And I, um, I do look for emotion in people and defendants and whatnot. And um, I didn't see it. Uh, it's not to say that Keith is wrong. Uh, it, it could be Keith did see it, and we all missed it. Right, right. But if if he did, that would be really the first and only emotion that yes, he Yes, I have not seen anything from him. He doesn't turn around and look who's in the... Lots of times you see defendants are looking into the courtroom uh, in the is gallery to like, see who they know, right. if anybody's there that's supporting them or whatnot. He never does that. Right. In fact, when he walks in from his jail cell... Uh, he doesn't even look out in, into the gallery. He looks down, he walks around, and he sits down, and that's it. Right. We don't get anything from him. Other questions? Curious as to whether U.S. Marshals knew Daryl was on the phone with MPD. Did U.S. Marshals know that Daryl was uh, on the phone? Yes. They, they, well, I would say that they did because um, uh, the way that uh, w- crew works together it's called the um, Capital Region um, uh, task, force, task Force, Fugitive Task Force. And they have members from all departments, including MPD, uh, that are on that task force. And so um, uh, with Detective Owens, who was on the phone with, uh, she, uh, w- well, we know that Daryl had been in touch with him. Uh Darrell had been in touch with him, but we also know George said that he was on the phone with Detective Owens at the time that they pulled him over. So uh, I would say that they had to have known. Otherwise, uh, the coordination of getting this arrest uh, wouldn't have worked. So they had to have known where they were coming from, right? Because they they knew that, that, that they were at the hotel because George said he saw three heavily tinted vehicles watching them and he suspected it was the police and then while they were driving along Darrell calls Chelsea to say the police are following us I'm still fascinated to learn exactly how all of that went down I suspect there's more to the story oh, I'm sure there is more questions anything else okay, okay. Uh, you know moving on to sort of the broader case I did have a question from Nancy Mike Sull, and I hope Nancy that I'm pronouncing that correctly why didn't Darren Wint bring weapons to the home invasion? So this goes to my theory on the case, maybe. I'm, it might be a little too early for all of that, but I do think that it is entirely possible that Darren Wint did not intend when he started out to kill anybody. That he might have just broken into the home thinking nobody was there. The blue Porsche was gone. He thought that nobody would be home, that Philip would be at school maybe had been casing the house we'd heard some reports of that but none of that has come into evidence 
Vera should have left by three o'clock. And then he got surprised. And then. Well, that's why this is such a fascinating case. You know, there's so many things we just don't know. But uh, let me ask you this. I don't know that he didn't bring something because we haven't heard evidence of a stabbing instrument that had blood on it. Mm -hmm. Have we? No, no, we haven't. We haven't. And I think we've all been led down the road to believe it was the samurai sword. But as you've pointed out, there was no blood on that samurai sword. Which could have been burned up in the fire. Okay. So there could have been a stabbing instrument that was used, but they have not brought it out to us. Um, and, you know, the knife in the basement did not have blood on it. No. Uh, there was a what appeared to be a letter opener sitting at the front door on the floor that they didn't tell us anything about other than it's there. Um you know, we know but, that but, the baseball bat was used. But, and that was something that was already in the house. Yeah, it, right. And we talked about this before, the guns. And there's guns in the, the house. Guns. And there's money in and the money. house. And, and we didn't know about that. We didn't know he had no, $13,000 in the house. Right. Why didn't he take Why didn't, that? Right. Why didn't Sava give him that money and say, here. Here it is. Just go. There's so much. I don't know that we'll ever know. You know, another interesting thing about that knife um, that will probably come out, I'm guessing, in the defense case. They may, you know, they, they mention little things, but they don't follow up, and you think, okay, we're gonna, there's more to this. That knife that was pro- propping open the basement window, Jeffrey Stein made mention that it had paint on it. He said it was a dirty knife with old paint on it. Mm. And remember that the brothers were doing a paint job. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, at interesting. George Washington okay. University. Yeah. I'm still I still am not clear on where the van was parked when it was picked up by the yeah, tow truck. I'm not either. But it's the other reporters totally all tell me, me that it was somewhere around there. 2400 Pennsylvania Avenue is an address that was mentioned by Christopher Bruckman, the assistant US attorney. They didn't show it on a map. But that is right by George Washington University. But, but Darrell isn't working there yet. He, I know. That's why it's crazy. <laughs> These weird coincidences, right? That you just think, yeah. how? That's mm. why people think that there's this giant yeah. conspiracy going on. Well, there there is a timeline, too, that uh, makes you wonder, really makes you wonder. And that is the we know that Amy made a phone call, or at least she spoke with, uh, the man from the sprinkler company yeah. at one fourteen in the afternoon, right? Right. Uh, something right. like that was. I, I wrote uh, it down. It I have it in my notes somewhere. It was one thirteen or one fourteen, right? Right. The fire is reported just a few minutes later. I thought maybe it was one oh seven, but whatever. It was after one. Yeah. You and might then, be right. And then we. And one twelve is what you told me on the sprinkler call. Okay. Yeah, one twelve. So, so literally like ten minutes later. Yeah. Uh, so. Amy is living up until just a few minutes before the fire is reported. Now, the Porsche is seen on New York Avenue at what time? Because you were there for oh. that testimony. Mm, make me go yeah, back no, to my notes. Yeah, we're the not. Porsche was seen on New York Avenue around 130, 139, 143, those, those times. Okay, all right. So that's still enough time to get into the Porsche and get out onto New York Avenue, isn't it? And driving erratically is what it was described as. Yeah. Uh, you and, know, and who knows what Rudy would have taken. I mean, you come down from that neighborhood, the quickest way out of that neighborhood is to ride on down onto Rock Creek Parkway. It wasn't it definitely wasn't Rock Creek Parkway. They had surveillance video, traffic camera video showing it. It was down um Bladensburg, I believe. Yeah, no, I'm just trying to think uh, 
how that Porsche got out of that out Northwest of neighborhood. neighborhood and down onto New York Avenue. Um, you know, there's a variety of ways that you can go through the inner city, of course, but um, the quickest way would be down uh, Rock Creek Parkway and then down Independence Avenue and then, you know, making your way out that way somehow. So, it, But it does seem like it all the murders themselves happen very, very quickly. Maybe a split-second decision. I don't know. Yeah. And then there's a question, which we still aren't clear on about the cell phones pinging and that was very strange i picked up on it at the very end on a redirect and apparently sava's cell phone pinged a tower in dupont circle at 11:54 in the morning on the 14th how is mm-hmm. that possible well uh, a phone expert would have to explain it, but um, the, 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 uh, one attorney would have to say, is it possible that your phone could ping off one tower uh, and then suddenly, let's say there's some kind of a burp in in the system, right? Well, in order to keep your phone working, another pow- tower picks Maybe. up your signal, but right? But it's further there. away. They didn't even go there. They didn't, yeah, they didn't I wasn't try, there for that they testimony. Didn't, they didn't really so. try to explain it. They just left it as this weird open question, which made everybody kind of wonder, well, is it possible that, that the suspect left the house and then came back to the yeah, house? But, then, but, it all right, but here's the thing. If, if, uh, if the phone is suddenly down in the DuPont Circle area, if it's pinging off a tower, well, how long was it pinging off that tower? Right? I mean, right. if it was actually down in that neighborhood, would it have been pinging for several minutes? Well, and you know or was it do? just one ping? It might just have been a ping. I think that might just be one of those red herrings because yeah, 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 yeah. because yeah. Saba was making phone calls that morning. Yeah, several, many. So that wouldn't make any sense. I don't know when. I mean, we know that he he called several times. I think the last last phone call was Amy texting Nellie at 9.56 in the morning. No, ten text Saba at ten twenty six that the package has been delivered. So I, I don't know. Well, it's yeah, because Saba was talking to Jordan Wallace about the delivery of the money. Right. Yeah. Right. And and he got a call from. Well, that was early in the morning. You know. So who knows? So <laughs> what do you think the defense has up its sleeve? We got about four minutes left in our podcast. Well, uh, my experience covering trials is that defense attorneys very, very often just rely on their questioning of the prosecution's witnesses mm-hmm. and that they sometimes don't put anybody on at all and will will rest. Uh, so uh, it's very possible that uh, Laura Bach rests uh, they go have a bench conference, and then they come back, and they bring the jury in, and the defense says, we're, we're not going to put on any witnesses at all. But I don't, I don't see that happening because no? this week we were told that the prosecution was about a week ahead of schedule, and the defense wasn't ready. They needed some time to get their witnesses Schedule. Okay. Have they said they're going to call witnesses? Did they name them? They didn't Did they name read them. them off? But they yeah. were saying that, okay, okay well, some, we needed to rearrange some of our witnesses. And so that's why that also they decided to hold that hearing today. They've pushed things off. We believe that closing arguments, not closing arguments, excuse me, that comes at the very end. But the prosecution will wind up its case, I believe, on Wednesday. Well, if the defense puts on a case, I have and a feeling. And it's supposed to be a two-month trial. Yeah, I... 
I, I we'd only be speculating on who they'd call, I but uh, uh, it seems to me that they have done a very good job of raising some doubt with the prosecution's witnesses, and they have driven some holes into some things. Mm-hmm. And I, if I'm a j- juror and I'm sitting there and I hear some of this stuff, I'm wondering. And now, especially if Darrell does not get called to the stand, mm-hmm. that is a huge gaping hole right. in this case that that will raise some questions with jurors. Well, where is Durrell? Why haven't we seen him? Right. So final explanation, because this also came up in one of our uh, in one of our questions. The it doesn't really matter as far as Darren's fate goes, whether he was the murderer or not. In terms of the the charge of felony murder, he'll still do the same time. Right. If they find him guilty. Sure, because they can. If they, if the jury agrees with the prosecution that he was inside that house at the time of the murders, then yes, he's guilty. They don't have to prove that he was indeed the, mur- that, the murderer. That it was at his hand. No, not according to the current law. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I it's going to be very interesting to see what, if any, defense they're going to put up because I think. Just from sitting there and watching what they've done, they've raised some interesting questions. They certainly have. And uh, and that was their whole reason for um, uh, throwing out Stefan and, and, and Darrell's names, because they went through all the evidence and they saw where the holes were. And they saw that they had a chance. All right. Okay. I think we are wrapping it up right now. It is just about one hour. We, we thought we did. We don't. We thought we'd have an hour worth of material, right, Paul? We always do. We always do. We've done it three times now. Thank you guys so yeah. much for joining us once again on our Mansion Murders Facebook page. That is where you are able to see this live. You'll be able to replay it. And also, if you want to subscribe, that would be great. You can do that on iTunes. You can also do that on Google Play and through Audio Boom. You can also watch it again on our Fox 5 DC website as well. Thanks so much for joining us, you guys. Lots to cover next week, so we'll see you then.